All right. Welcome back to Compassion Before Commission. I got an awesome guest that was referred to me by Todd over at David Meltzer's office, Richard Brooke. Welcome to the show, Richard. Hey, thanks, Jake. It's an honor to be here. Yes, sir. It's great to have you. Hey, just as a way of getting started, tell us a little bit about yourself. Wow, a little bit. Um, <laughs> let's see. I live on the island of Lanai uh, in Hawaii, uh, which is the largest private island in the world. It's owned by Larry Ellison of Oracle. There's only 3,000 people that live here. My wife and I have lived here for six years. I'm from California originally, but I spent most of the last 35 years in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I started off life as a chicken cutter for a chicken processing plant in California. I did that for four years and then through a little bit of adversity, I ended up in business, sales and business, which is what I've done for the last 45 years. And most of that in the last 10 years has been coaching and speaking and writing and training entrepreneurs and salespeople and mothers and fathers and husbands and wives. Nice. That's my story. It's all right. And uh, so you mentioned some adversity. Um, you know, you had the power to pivot. You had to make a pivot into this type of lifestyle. Tell me, what was that like? Yeah, well, it was um, kind of crazy and scary. I mean, as, I'll, as I tell you the story, it won't sound like a big deal at all. But to me, it was a big deal. So I didn't do very well in school, barely got out of high school, never went to college. Not because I was stupid. I just didn't like school. And so, you know, I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley of California. It's just north of you, a few hours, Jake. But, you know, that's all agricultural, cattle, dairy, you know, farming, almonds, pistachios, that kind of stuff. So if you basically flunk out of high school in the San Joaquin Valley, you're going to end up working in ag unless you make a run for the hills somewhere. So I ended up working for Foster Farms, which was a chicken processing plant. And, you know, in, the, in a plant like that, which is like 3,000 people and everybody has smocks and hair nets and, you know, they're cutting up chickens all day long. If you're Caucasian and you speak English, you're management material. Right. That's pretty much all it took because everybody there spoke either Spanish or Portuguese or, or Hindu or... Um, and so, you know, I kind of had a career mapped out for me there because I wasn't stupid. I was hardworking and I actually liked the chicken plant. I liked the people that worked there. I, I kind of had my whole life mapped out and, and I was working my way up the ranks a little bit. And then all of a sudden, four years into it, Foster Farms created a company-wide policy that you couldn't advance any further than I already was, which wasn't very high. Yeah. without a four-year college degree. And so, wow, all of a sudden my career was over. I mean, you know, I could have stayed at that position for the next 35 years, but that would have been pretty miserable. And, you know, kind of coinciding with that, a buddy of mine, a high school buddy, actually the same guy that got me a job at the chicken plant, uh, he'd already left and gone on to work at Sp uh, Ragu Spaghetti Sauce Factory. <laughs> yeah. But he started calling me about coming to a business opportunity meeting. 
And he was all amped up and hyped up. And hey, I come to this meeting. We're going to make a lot of money. And, you know, Jake, I sincerely said no. I was not interested in going to a business opportunity meeting to learn how to earn a lot of money. And, you know, what's kind of ironic is I would have jumped through all kinds of hoops at Foster Farms and, you know, politicked and did a good job and worked overtime and everything for a hundred dollar a month raise in my salary hundred dollars a month and this friend of mine was trying to get me to come down and look at how to make five thousand a month i was making like twelve hundred right but i totally blew him off and i blew him off three or four times in a row and i blew him off pretty hard and in hindsight you know, I, I reflect on, well, what motivated me to do that? And I see it now. I didn't really see it then. But what I see now is at the chicken plant, I was kind of a big fish in a small pond. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I was comfortable there is a better way to put it. I knew my way around. People knew me. I had some level of respect and recognition. And, and I was upwardly mobile, at least, you know, at the time that I was telling him no. And the idea of going to a meeting with a bunch of strangers you know i was comfortable wearing a smock and a hairnet and a steel mesh glove on my hand and rubber boots and the idea of going to a business meeting with people in suits that i didn't know where they're talking about big money made me very uncomfortable and in hindsight i i realized i saw myself as a small fish in a really big pond so i said no but then of course when Foster Farms changed their policy, I didn't go looking for him, but because he was a friend, I just happened to go by his house, I don't know, a few weeks later and he was changed, you know, he was wearing a suit, and had his hair cut, talking positive and excited about life and business. And so I just looked, listened, and I, you know, I didn't understand it, I didn't like it, but you know, I guess one of the, assets I have is I'm curious about stuff Sure. more than I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical, but I, I like to investigate what I'm skeptical about. Most people are skeptical and just, you know, blow it off. I'm skeptical and I like to learn. So I kept looking. In fact, I looked at his opportunity for three weeks and I mean, almost every day for three weeks. And then, you know, finally the I saw something I just never saw before. I, I understood something I, I didn't, didn't understand before. I got kind of a little bit of a crash course on at least that kind of business in that three-week period. Uh, and the number one thing that attracted me to what he was doing was actually not the money, not the business, not the product, but the people. It's the first time I'd ever been around anybody, Jake, that was really interested in me and asked me what felt like sincere questions. What was I interested in? What did I wanna do with my life? Where did I wanna live? How much money did I wanna make? What kind of car did I wanna drive? What kind of home did I wanna live live in? What kind of woman did I wanna marry? I mean, they asked me just a lot of questions like that. And, and then they you know, were teaching as part of the business, what we now know of today is personal development. This was 45 years ago. Sure. Um, so I was really attracted to the whole personal development movement, that body of knowledge, those books, those audio tapes, those speakers. I had never heard of anybody like that before. Nobody, 
nobody came to the chicken plant and did a motivational right. speech, right? <laughs> no, exactly. uh, so, you know, I got in business. I struggled a lot for two or three years. And then I finally it clicked and I did well. Yeah, that's great. So tell me a little bit about like, how does one overcome from the small fish in a big pond mindset like you did? How does one overcome that? Well, what I know today about overcoming it is visualization. So, you know, you remember the secret, right? The yeah. big hubaloo about the secret and all this build up to the secret. And then we finally right. get this hour long, you know, <laughs> TV program with all the great speakers and gurus. And, and I watched it with great anticipation because I thought, oh my gosh, finally, they're going to tell people the secret. Yeah. They never did. They just kept telling people there was a secret. The secret I guess is a secret. They wanted people to, to pay to learn what the secret was. But if there is a secret to success, Jake, what I have learned is it's it's kind of a little piece of neuroscience, and I'll put it in the simplest of terms. The part of us that is immensely powerful, which is not our conscious mind. You know, that's the part of us that memorizes all the right answers and understands how to play the game of life and learns how to do our job just well enough so we don't get fired and we don't cross a busy street and we don't touch a hot stove and that kind of stuff, which is, you know, it's great, but doesn't move mountains, doesn't inspire millions of people to go in a particular direction or, or even inspire us to do anything extraordinary. But from here down, so maybe consider the subconscious mind, the spiritual part of you and I, the emotional part of you and I, and our gut, which is now being perhaps proven to be more powerful and more intelligent than even our subconscious mind. Hmm. That part of us from like conscious mind on down to embody all of us, here's the secret. Hmm cannot tell the difference between a real experience and one vividly imagined. And that's right out of Think and Grow Rich, right. written in the 30s. That's a great book. Um, and, but it's been proven over and over and over again. And probably the best example is, you know, listening audience, watching audience. If you go to a really sad movie that's a well done movie, good actors, good music, good script, all that stuff. And it's a sad movie, right? There's a hero or a heroine and they, you know, maybe they fall in love or something and then somebody dies, right? And it's well presented. Do you cry? Now, man, you might get right up to the point where you're like, uh, uh. I feel like you got a golf ball in your throat. <laughs> right, but the women, you know, they're balling, right? Yeah. So how is that? that this part of us is moved by a movie that we know consciously is all contrived, never happened, nobody died, nobody even fell in love. And how is it? Because the part of us that is moved and moves other people can't tell the difference. So how do you use that to move mountains in your world? Easy, you just take what it is you want to make normal, make comfortable, make habitual, make competent, take whatever it is 
whoever it is you want to be, whatever it is you want to have, whatever it is you want to be doing, and just imagine that you're successfully doing it, being it, having it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And to the part of you that's powerful, it can't tell the difference between that you imagined it and you actually experienced it. So, you know, imagine if I had gone to the big pond as a little fish. Yeah. But what I, what I actually, the experience I actually had was that the pond wasn't so big and it wasn't so scary and I wasn't a small fish. I was a big fish and I was comfortable that I imagined over and over and over again that I moved powerfully in that pond. I connected with people. I built relationships. I was respected, admired, and trusted. I was successful in that pond. I imagine it over and over and over and over and over again to the part of me that's powerful. It's as though I went to the pond and moved powerfully. And so if you'd been to the pond and moved powerfully over and over again, then the idea of going back to the pond feels like no big deal. It's where I belong. I move powerfully in the big pond and the big pond's not so big as I imagined. That's the secret to success. The people that practice the art of what I call um, vision and self-motivation do very well with any endeavor they have. They don't have big, scary ponds, not for long. Right. Yeah. And, and kind of like the analogy of a goldfish and whenever it goes to a bigger pond, it can adapt. It begins to adapt to that pond. Sometimes we have to get outside of our comfort zone and into a, a different pond, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're, you're probably a bass fisherman, right? So <laughs> if you want small bass, put them in a small pond. If you want bigger bass, put them in a bigger pond. Yeah. Sometimes and, we got to get outside that comfort zone. <laughs> yeah. And feed them trout. They like trout. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So right before we hit the record button, Richard, you're telling me that you you, you used to go or travel through my neck of the woods in Kentucky. Sure. You said you were selling. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, that the journey that you were on um, traveling and selling. Well, from a sales standpoint, um, Jake, I was raised by wolves. And these were the same guys that also were very artful coaches and personal development leaders. So that's why I was attracted to them. But when it came to sales, what they knew about sales basically was, in fact, one of the books that they had me read over and over again was um, the book. I, I've never even seen it in the last 30 years. It's probably, well, it's got to be somewhere, right? But it, it's by an author named Robert Ringer. And the name of the book is Winning Through Intimidation. <laughs> and, and that's a book that they had me read over and over and over again. And that's yeah. that, that was their style of selling, was just manipulate people, just bully people, just back people into a corner, make people feel stupid, make them wrong, just break them down. Oh, and, you know, the, the analogy was, you know, kind of like grab people by their ankles, lift them up and shake them till all the money falls out of their pockets. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was me about the time I was traveling through Madisonville, Kentucky, which would have been in the very early 1980s. Um, you might not even have been born or you might have been two years <laughs> old and I'm 
I'm probably down at the local. I'm not sure what was in Madisonville, but I usually hung out at the Holiday Ends or Ramadas and yeah. did these shakedown opportunity meetings. And, you know, somewhere along the, the line, Jake, I just evolved. And, and I really evolved through personal development, listening to different people. Um, and two people had a huge impact on my sales philosophy. One was a guy um, named Larry Wilson, who now owns one of the largest corporate training companies in the world. But in the late 80s, I listened to a 30-minute audio tape by him, which was called A New Way of Selling. And then maybe a year or two later, I read an article in Psychology Today about being curious and listening. And I, for time's sake, I won't dive into either one of those here. But suffice to say, it just changed my that and everything else I was studying and doing. And, you know, I think probably also what happened is after, you know, five, six, seven, eight years of shaking people down, I just didn't like myself and didn't like that part of sales. So I changed my whole philosophy and my whole state of being and, and who I became as a salesperson was somebody that if you are a prospect or just a person out in the world, my orientation to you, instead of having a target on your back or seeing you as fresh meat, uh, I saw you as a person worthy of my curiosity, hmm. a human being worthy of my curiosity. And what does that mean? It just means that I'm more curious about learning about people than I am selling them. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that I abrogate my sales objectives or my profession or any of that. It's just a different way of doing it. And so when I meet somebody, I'm just curious about them. And, okay. you know, if That's you're true. curious about somebody, the only form of conversation you can have with that person is you ask questions and listen. If you're curious, you're not telling them anything. You're not telling them about your product. You're not telling exactly. them about you. You're, you're asking questions about them and you're listening and you're also not asking manipulative questions. Right. You know, the kind of questions that if they answer the way you want them to answer, now you got them, you can tell them why they need to buy your product. You're just authentically getting to know somebody and you're letting the conversation go wherever it goes. So if I met you, Jake, and I started asking you questions and listening, and what I learned about you was you are not a good prospect for my product or whatever I was selling, then that's awesome. Who you become for me, Jake, is a connection. And maybe that connection is casual and limited and maybe it's deeper and maybe it turns into friendship and who knows what comes of it i'll be a better person for it for it i believe that our wealth as human beings can be summed up in how many quality relationships we have and how many experiences we have with those people i think when you and i are laying on our deathbed if we get you know, five minutes notice to recap our lives. We're not thinking about how much money we made or how many, you know, sales records we set, or we're thinking about special people in our lives and special things that we did. And we're recapping that. And, you know, most people go through life 
And they don't rack up a bunch of those, some, but maybe not a bunch. And I think what life is all about is how many extraordinary experiences can you rack up with people you care about? And, you know, instead of quantifying our life in years, what if we quantified it in memories and relationships? Then we could have that fountain of youth. We could live to be 500 or 1,000 years old. Just 10x your experiences and your relationships. How do you do that? Be curious about people. Listen to people. Serve people. Yeah. And the more people you do that with, well, we all know in sales, there's a numbers game in there, right? So <laughs> if I have a thousand contacts that I'm nurturing the relationship because I care about them and I care about whatever's important to them, I'm going to sell more than if everybody I meet has a target on their back and how I see them is they're either a sale for me or they're nothing. And that's a real empty way to be a sales professional. You may rise to the ranks, the top, set some records, but you're going to be looking for a new gig and your career is going to be empty. My career is full and rich. I still love, if not more, what I do today than I did 40 years ago. I'm 65. I don't have to work anymore, but I already play enough golf and do a whole bunch of other stuff. So <laughs> I, I love to work. Yeah. I love to meet people and right. and connect and coach and train and enrich in my life with other people's experiences. And everybody has something to offer us. They don't have to be successful. They don't have to be fancy. They don't have to be smart. They don't, they don't have to agree with us. You know, some of the most fascinating people in the world to me are people that diametrically oppose everything I believe in. <laughs> I think they're fascinating. And wouldn't our world be a better place if both sides of any issue saw the other side as fascinating instead of something that should be annihilated? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, what does compassion before commission mean to you? And you just explained it all right there. I mean, just relationship driven. I think that's awesome. It's fascinating, as you said, for sure. And I'm curious, Richard, how can we as, as prof professionals, as leaders, um, you know, coaches, cure commission breath? How can we cure commission breath? Well, it does. It takes a transformation, uh, Jake, and I know you know that it, it takes coaching. It takes leading people to a different set of values. And I, I believe the place it starts is in our own self-worth. So to the degree that we question our own self-worth, we, we question our own self-esteem then we need to produce visible results in the outside world, not only to make our own selves feel better about ourselves, but, you know, we have this twisted idea that if we achieve more, if we make more, if we sell more, if we drive more, if we live in a house more, if we dress more, then other people will hold us in high esteem. And, you know, some people might temporarily but the people that are held in the highest esteem in the world are not held in the highest esteem because of what they've accomplished. It's who they are. I mean, what they've accomplished, like in money and materialism, 
it's who they are and, and how they serve other people. So listening audience, um, you know, here's one way to put it. Um, if you want to be the most interesting person that other people have met. So just think about that. You meet somebody, you want to be the most interesting person they've ever met. Instead of dressing it all up on the outside, here's my records, here's my resume, here's how smart I am, here's my clothes, here's my car, here's my watch. You, know, you, right. you can spot these people a mile away in a video or a photo op, right? Because right. they're always like, they're, <laughs> their watch is always in the picture, right? It's almost right. like, this is who I am. Yeah. This is my COVID ban for the resort that gets me into the resort. <laughs> uh, you know, if you want to be the most interesting person people have ever met so that you're loved and respected and admired and trusted, be the most interested person yeah. they've ever met. Yeah. And I didn't make that cliche up. Might have been Jim Rome, Jim Rome, but just think about that. If you're the most interested person they've ever met, you're the most interesting person they've ever met because everybody else they've met is more interested in themselves than they yeah, are other people. Exactly. And to tie that together, I'll tell you a quick story uh, about one of the pivotal moments that reshaped me. It was this Psychology Today uh, article that I told you guys about earlier. Um, this is like maybe 1990 or something. I was reading Psychology Today and the editor and the staff were gonna do an experiment. Now they were doing it around rapport building. And they don't, they weren't doing it the way I teach it today. They had an agenda in what they were doing and they were manipulating, but still there was gold in the exercise. So like what I teach people to do when you're asking people questions is you don't, you don't have an agenda for their questions. There's no list of questions. You ask whatever's present for you in the moment. And really the next question you ask is based on what they just said or didn't say. Mm. So you ask a question, I could ask you, you know, Jake, where are you from? And then the second question is based on what you said. And the third question is based on what you said. So they had more of an agenda built in. Okay, we're gonna ask about all these things, but still the result of the experiment was solid gold. So here was the experiment. The editor of Psychology Day got on a plane in New York, flew nonstop to LA, and what he was going to do for the five or six hours was ask his seatmate questions, rapport building questions, which today I would call that just being pure curious. Right. And so they get to LA and this is pre TSA. So the editor gets off the plane, goes to baggage claim. The staff is already in LA. They flew out early and they intercept the seatmate. And they say, uh, hey, what did you think about the guy you flew out here with? <laughs> and the seatmate said, the most interesting man I've ever met. Wow. So they asked him, well, what does he do for a living? I don't know. Well, tell me about his family. <laughs> Why was he coming to LA? Didn't even know. What was his name? Now, the article said the seatmate didn't know his name. And, you know, that might be hard to believe. And I'm not 
suggesting even that Psychology Today didn't puff up the article. But it didn't matter because I got it right there. And, you know, did the, did the editor tell the seatmate his name? Yeah, he probably did. But, you know, you and I can't remember somebody's name for one second after they tell us our name. So it wouldn't surprise me if the seatmate didn't know his name. Bottom line is the seatmate didn't know anything about the editor of Psychology Today and yet held him as the most interesting person he'd ever met. And right there, all the lights went off for me. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is how I'm gonna serve mankind. This is who I'm gonna be the rest of my life. I'm gonna serve people by being interested in them, not to sell them. Hey, am I gonna give up my sales career? No, but you know, but based on everything I'm reading here, I think this is gonna actually be a boom to my sales career. And it was for obvious reasons. Absolutely. But that's not why I did it. I did it because it was the right thing to do. It was a smart thing to do. It, it lifted me up. It helped my self-esteem. People saw me as more valuable, not for what I drove or how much money I made or what kind of suit I wore. And you know, I was spending you know $3,500 on every suit and I had 10 of them, you know? <laughs> In the, in the 1980s, I was spending $50,000 on a car, which is in some junkyard now, right? Exactly. All of it to be the most interesting person people had ever met. And yeah, it's not that that doesn't work from a manipulative standpoint. It does. But everybody I've ever seen on that train, they just, they burn out. It eats away at your soul. It's the selfish way to sell yeah and people don't last long on that journey no well this has been an incredible time uh getting to know you and spending time with you today richard and for those that want to connect with you where can they find you uh simplest way to find me is uh richardbrook.com b-r-o-o-k-e richardbrook.com if you want to taste of the work I do. Uh, Susie can drop in the chat or comments if there is a link to a, I have a free 10 day audio series where I send you a, a message of me talking to you for five minutes a day, 10 days in a row. Could change your life if you pay attention to it. Um, but the simplest way to find me is just richardbrook.com on social media. I'm Richard Bliss Brook, B-L-I-S-S Brook. That is really my middle name. Uh, thanks to my grandmother on my father's <laughs> side. That's and awesome. uh, so I'm easy to find. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to share with your audience. Yeah, thank you for your time. I appreciate it today.